So let yourself come back in and be settled to sit in a way which is comfortable, at ease. I wonder if that baby will remember when it grows up <laughs> that it was meditating two months of age. <sighs> Over the past few weeks here on Monday night, been talking in different ways about the inner journey, the characteristics of wisdom that one can discover in oneself. The journey, as I spoke of last week with that um, story from India of Nachiketa and his encounter with uh, Lord Yama, the Lord of Death. This evening, rather than speak about mindfulness and awareness, I'd like to speak about forgetfulness. (laughs) (laughs) And that part of us that even though we forget, still knows something anyway. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to speak about the practices that were really an invitation to those who came to the temples, to the monasteries, to say, here, try this in yourself, see how this works for you in your life. He would speak about them not so much as developing or teaching at certain times, but as remembering that we're, inter- that we're involved in the practice of remembering something. And he often spoke of this awakening or wisdom as awakening within us the one who knows. We could call this one who knows uh, our natural wisdom, our Buddha nature. And it is really the consciousness or the wakefulness that is your birthright, that is your true nature, and it's not far away in us. It's nearer than near. Rumi puts it this way, the poet Rumi. He says, pay regular visits to yourself. (laughs) It's a terrific meditation instruction. (laughs) Pay regular visits to yourself. And so it's not some great mystical thing someplace else, although mystical things happen, and they're cool when they happen. Um, but then they pass and other things happen. But in those ways, it's as if some people have it and some people don't. And it's not really that, this awakening or wisdom that we speak about, that someone has it and someone else doesn't. It's a remembering that's there for each of us. Now, one way to understand the one who knows is to look at the one who forgets. 
And I think forgetting is fantastic, wondrous, astonishing. Forgetfulness and sleep. Look at this earth that we are collectively inhabiting for this time. And there are all these amazing mysteries, the mysteries of those big balls of fire that hang out in black space that no one knows quite how they got there. The mysteries of how life came out of whatever, or how you got here. But sleep is one of the better ones. I mean, look at this. On this particular planet, we, you and I, and most higher, so to speak, more complicated animals, I don't know they were higher, sleep. That is, we have certain periods of activity and then we go completely unconscious for a time and go into this other world, right? And when we sleep, there are dreams and all these things we're doing. I mean, and dogs and cats seem to do it too, you know? The little feet sometimes go and you see their eyes kind of moving and stuff. It's happening, chasing something in their sleep, sniffing around. It's this incredible mystery that here we are in this world and then we go into that other one for a lot of hours a day and then we come back to this one. Why? Some do it longer, bears for months. We don't know whether they dream or not. Some sleep at night, some are nocturnal and they sleep in the day. I know that's true of some of you as well, even as you travel around, right? Now the parents of that new baby and other new parents really know about sleep ah, and its desirability. So there's this fantastic thing that we enter into, which is cycles of being awake and cycles going to sleep. The dream world. But equally wondrous is a second kind of sleep, which we could call the waking spell that we are under some of the time. That's the sleep of automatic living. When we get in the car and drive somewhere, even a fair distance, and then pull up and realize we weren't there the entire time. I mean, who was driving? We were someplace else and the car arrives there. You know, all know that experience. And that's not the only time it happens. I mean, as a parent, there you are parenting away as best you can, tending to your children, you know, and then some difficulty comes and all of a sudden out of your mouth, unbidden, comes your mother or your father <laughs> talking to your child, you know. <coughs> or the sleep of separateness in which we live as if we weren't connected with everyone else. It's a kind of sleep, isn't it? I mean, we breathe, we interbreathe the air with one another and the trees, and we drink the rain, and we are made of what everything else is, as if we were separate. That comes from the small sense of self, the body of fear. Or the sleep that doesn't believe in death. I mean, the death of the body. As it's said in the... Uh, Bhagavad Gita at some point, Krishna is speaking with Arjuna, asking, Arjuna asks him, what's the most wondrous thing on this wondrous earth? And Lord Krishna says, the most wondrous thing that I've seen on this earth is human beings who can see 
Others like themselves die all around them and still believe it won't happen to me. <laughs> I was doing a retreat a few years ago down in the desert in Joshua Tree in Yucca Valley, big retreat, 150 people and so. And we we're teaching about meditation and presence and death, about the fact that until we face death, in some way we can't live. And everyone's nodding and I'm reading Zen poems about death and all that. This is cool. And then someone died. They died after meditation at that retreat. Keeled over, took them to the emergency room. They had a major aneurysm and they died. And all the people who were sitting around them were in shock. Because it was one thing to talk about dying and it was another to actually have it happen that close. But yet if we look, the people on either side of us, in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, um, one of them will have died, or maybe both. Or maybe they won't have, and you will, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's not gonna happen. Oh, we just go along through our days. That's a different kind of sleep. Now sleep has its benefits. Letting go, rest, a renewal, a kind of forgive and forget quality to sleep that's beneficial. In Buddhism, sometimes it's called the poor man's nirvana. You know, at least it's something we have, right? And especially so for the sorrows and the trauma of life. We shouldn't be so quick to judge those who are asleep. Emily Dickinson wrote, There is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step across as within a swoon. And for some of us, there's a lot of sorrow, and the sleep is a balm to that. So the Christian Desert Fathers, one young monk goes to the abbot and he says, you know, Father, when we're in there meditating, one of the monks sleeps, one of these young monks, instead of praying, what should I do? Should I pinch him to bring him back awake? And the abbot says, ah, oh, if one of the young brothers were to sleep near me, I would put his head on my lap so that he might rest more comfortably. So a certain kind of mercy rather than judgment about it because to forget brings a rest. It lets us be fresh in some way. But alas, it can also go so easily into denial. We live in a society, just as we deny death, that in many, many other ways doesn't want to deal with difficult things. Sigmund Freud, I think this passage is from a quote book, I think this passage is actually from Civilization and Its Discontents. I'm not sure. Life as we find it is too hard for us. It entails too much pain, too many disappointments, impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliative remedies. There are three of these most powerful means, great diversions of interest, which lead us to care less about our misery, substitute gratifications which lessen it, and intoxicating substances which make us insensitive to it. Something of this kind is indispensable. 
So it can go into a kind of addiction, and we know it. Addiction to television, addiction to speed, addiction to food, all kinds of things to take us away. Addiction to materialism, take us away from things that are too hard to bear. The denial of who we are. These are from letters, actual statements found on insurance forms where car drivers attempted to summarize the details of their accidents. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. (laughs) Or, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. Mm. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. (laughs) An invisible car came out of nowhere and struck my car and vanished. (laughs) I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. (laughs) And the telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front end of my car. We laugh because it's so true, isn't it, huh? The kind of doublespeak that we're taught, you know, the peacekeeper nuclear missiles, or the lottery. You have as much, about as much chance to win the lottery as as them sending it to you by accident, right? (laughs) So forgetfulness and sleep is a mysterious quality, an amazing one. Our separate universe, the sense of ourself as separate, is constructed of one thing forgetfulness. You know the poem from Emerson about being born trailing clouds of glory, or the Hindu song or saying that the child in the womb will sing, oh please let me remember who I am. And then the first cry after birth, oh dear, I've begun to forget already. Alan Watts wrote, one of his most widely read books on the taboo against knowing who you are. And it speaks about this ultimate game of hide and seek of the divine within us pretending that we're not that. And even religion collaborates. Joseph Campbell spoke of most religion as giving an inoculation against the real mystery. You go, you have a little bit of religious experience and then you don't have to deal with it. A story for you. This is a Sufi story and I'm actually quite fond of it because my wife 
when we were courting, she's an artist and a calligrapher. She wrote it out in this beautiful hand that she has as a calligrapher. A man who had studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died in the fullness of time and found himself at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, Go no further, O mortal, until you've proven to me your worthiness to enter into paradise. But the man answered, Just a minute now. First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? And before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, Let him in, he's one of us. <laughs> so the idea isn't a new set of beliefs, but really an investigation of what is the nature of sleep and forgetting and awakening. When we forget who we really are, we get so busy in our lives, we get too busy to awaken, too busy doing, too busy being ourselves, then we don't have time to love well or live fully. We're so busy, you know, until the doctor calls about your mammogram or pap smear, you know, or heart pains or your parents call about the hip that broke in a fall. And all of a sudden we realize again that we don't have time to live without paying attention. It's like the minister came in to the bar and saw most of his congregation there drinking, kind of got upset, decided to talk to them about it and said, all those who want to go to heaven step over here, you know, and most of the people did, but one of his congregants sort of adamantly stood by the bar. And he looked at him and he said, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And the man looked back and he said, oh, I thought you were going right now. But there is a cost to our sleepwalking or to living like machines in a mechanical way. Because when we do too much, we don't see the hearts of the people we're with. We take things for granted. Or we go through changes like this couple who came to see me for divorce counseling and said, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine for the kids. We'll just live near each other and it'll be okay. And it's not okay. It doesn't mean that there may not be a time for divorce. Um, but I've been with too many children or too many retreats for young men and older men where the men, when they finally got still and talked about their lives, would weep for fathers who weren't there or weep for the children that they had left or lost in divorce. So it may be that it's a solution at some times, but it's not okay to say it'll just be fine. It isn't. The sins of the fathers are visited on the children when we are asleep. The sins of the mothers are visited on our children. And it can happen for generations. When we're asleep, 
we pretend somehow that money and production are separate from the earth that goods are produced upon. And so we end up with the ozone hole and ecological destruction. We end up with a country that was founded with a lot of nobility and there's beautiful principles in this American society. And then we don't sign the ban against landmines, one of two or three countries in the world. We export billions of dollars of weapons. We're the greatest arms supplier on the face of the earth. And we want to have a noble society. But when we sleep, it's we allow these things to happen. And there's Kosovo again, right? Yugoslavia, one more time. In Greek, in the Greek language, the word for sleep is lethe. Some of you might know that. You're old to go to sleep, lethe. And the opposite for sleep, alethe, doesn't mean wake. The opposite of sleep, alethe, means truth. To sleep is not to see. And to awaken for a moment is to see, to see through the hallucinations, the mirage, the enchantment that we live, that death won't happen, or that everything will be fine, we won't suffer, there won't be pain or loss, that pleasure will be what will make us happy in the end, or money or whatever it is. Those are kinds of enchantments. There is a cost to putting ourselves to sleep. A pin shall prick your finger. A pin shall pick a pin shall prick thy finger and thou shalt feel it not. Thy tooth shall be extracted and thou shalt be anesthetized. Thou shalt be bitten by a mad dog and injected with serum and the mad dog put to sleep and neither of you feel any pain. Thou shalt pass a bundle of rags every day who cries, Give me a quarter, help me, I am homeless. And thou shalt be anesthetized and pass on. Or thou shalt be in the antechamber of the hospital awaiting birth or death, no matter. And thou shalt peruse the news of the world in the screen before thine eyes. Famine in Central Africa. Latest fashion bikini leaves no strap marks. Dioxin, diet cookbook, neo-Nazi outbreak, film star of the year, assassination of the year, and no one thing shall be worse and none better, and thou shalt ingest them all with the same smiling feeling. Have a nice day. Now, usually in spiritual teachings, we say, be aware, pay attention, remember, be awake. But what becomes very interesting is to reverse this and to begin to study forgetfulness. When do we go to sleep? When do we check out? When are we not present? It's kind of like peeking around the curtain for a moment if you know you know, you're about to do your addiction or you're about to whatever it is. Before you go to sleep, you notice it. Just say, now what's going on there that I'm going to sleep from? It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know? There's something behind that curtain.
And sometimes if we look, we see that we're afraid. We're afraid to love because we'll lose at something at some time, to live fully. We're afraid maybe that our heart isn't big enough to bear the sorrows of the world or what we've been given. It's like that story I tell so often of Ramdas's class in Oakland on service and the woman who came in one day and said, I've been giving money to this homeless man for weeks and weeks every morning on the way to work, but I never really looked at him. And this morning, after all this talk about service, I realized why. I was afraid that if I ever really looked in his eyes, he would be in my living room sleeping mm. next week. Afraid the heart isn't big enough. We don't know what to do. So this is all about the one who forgets. What about the one who knows? Doing this practice, we come together and sit and establish this presence of awareness of body, of heart, mind, the world. What is this one who knows? The Buddha within. Buddha means the awakened one. That wakefulness that moves freely through the world like a bird, one wing of wisdom or seeing clearly and one of compassion. Without this wisdom, we forget our death. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, when we forget death, our life becomes very confusing. Priorities aren't straight. Or Don Juan said, it is only because death is stalking us that life is a mystery. It makes it really alive. When we sit, when we stop, when we become silent, we can sense in a moment the awakening of the one who knows. And it's so simple. It's that place in us that recognizes what is true in this life. It's not far away. One of my favorite poems from Spanish from Juan Ramon Jimenez called Yo No Soy Yo. I am not I. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. This one who knows recognizes the truth in a moment of life. Impermanence. We never know how long we have. No one knows. An old kind of Sufi figure from the desert came in wearing burlap kind of robes and knocked at the door of the emir's palace loudly, called it a motel and asked for a night's sleep. This was reported to the emir who had him dragged into the central court by his throne and said, how dare you insult my palace? You better explain yourself or this is the end of this short life of yours. 
And the Sufi looked back at him and he said, Tell me, you the Emir, who owned this place before you did? My father. And what happened to him? Oh, he died. And who owned this place before your father did? Oh, my grandfather. And what happened to him? Oh, he died. And then he looked at the emir and said, you mean this place where people lodge for a brief while and move on? You say it's not a motel? <laughs> so the one who knows remembers this truth that we don't know how long we have. And instead of grasping and planning and holding, there comes the wisdom of insecurity, the preciousness of this moment and this one of each day, a kind of openness to the fact that we have this spring day and we don't know how much longer we have. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, it says in the Diamond Sutra, a star at dawn about to disappear, a flash of night lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. One of the things my wife Liana does in the way she lives is when my daughter or I go out to school, shopping, things, she always says goodbye. She always kind of makes, takes a moment to do a, a real connection before we depart. And I asked her early on in our relationship why she did it. And she said, because I never know if I'll see you again. She really lives that. And we all know that somewhere. This is the one who knows. The simple act of coming and sitting here, still, not doing, not busy, being with one's breath, with one's body, one's heart and mind, is this same respectful act of attention. The one who knows also sees the impossibility of possessing things and people because they don't last, they change, they rust, they get into accidents, they grow up, they become too small for us or too big for us. And they don't give us the thing our heart most deeply longs for, that happiness. Socrates, who lived a very frugal life, loved to go often to the marketplace. And when a student asked, why do you do this? He said, I love to go and discover how many things I am happy without. <laughs> Because the one who knows realizes in the end, it's not what you get, but what you give that matters. It's love that matters, generosity, openness of heart. And we now have the privilege of hearing or seeing written all these accounts of people's near-death experiences and that, kind of, that whole body of near-death literature. And it's quite extraordinary because first you, you hear the truth that comes in meditation and anytime we pay attention, the time is completely elastic and that in a moment of falling or the moment before the accident, one's entire life 
can pass and all the understandings that we need can come like that. And usually in that timeless moment, when people look at their lives, the questions are so simple. If we return, if we're given this life again, do I love well? Do I live this life with a fullness of heart, being, presence? The one who knows sees this truth even now, not by possessing, but by loving. Martin Luther King, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may, to follow that place of the divine. The one who knows in us sees that we cannot run from loss and from sorrow. That suffering and sorrow isn't a surprise to the one who knows, as death isn't a surprise. It's part of our nature, it's woven in. As much as we breathe in, we breathe out. As much as there's pleasure, there's pain. As much as there's joy, there's sorrow. We're in it together. This is the Buddha's first noble truth. And freedom comes only when we see that it is so in this world. We live in a world of unspeakable beauty and an ocean of tears. And even today, there are whole countries in Africa where there are generations of young children and grandparents, and most of the parents have died of AIDS. The whole middle generation is gutted, missing from the country. Even today, we wonder if there's going to be another war in the Balkans this day. And even today, it's not so far away. It's our cities and our families that's woven in as well. Our fears and hatreds and jealousy and delusion that create suffering. We will know the end of civilization when half of the world starves and the other half watches it on television. The one who knows sees the world honestly. What we can do first is to meet these sorrows with our heart open and our eyes open and then find our way to respond. In forgetfulness and sleep, the sleep of our day-to-day -day business, the sleep of the survival body, the body of fear, we lose our goodwill, our joy, our spirit, our compassion. And in our struggle, we tend to blame them. It's their fault, the government, our spouse, our lover, the economy, the polluters, the liberals or the conservatives, it doesn't matter. The neo-Nazis, the Islamic fundamentalists, the multinationals, the medical system. Somehow it's their fault. Or we blame ourselves. We have our own shame. It's our fault. 
It'll always be that way from that state of mind, lonely, afraid, we think, because it lacks forgiveness. We've lost some sweetness in ourselves. You know the story of the American painter James McNeil Whistler, who enrolled in West Point Military Academy in 1850s, whenever it was. And in an engineering class, the lieutenant in charge of the class asked them to uh, do a painting or draw a bridge, you know, the military engineering. So Whistler took the paper and did this whole romantic bridge, stone one with grassy banks and two small ch children fishing off of the bridge. And the lieutenant saw those children, said, get those children off the bridge, this is an engineering exercise. So Whistler got the kids off the bridge. He drew the next version of the stone bridge and had them fishing from the bank of the river. <laughs> Resubmitted it. And the officer got angrier still. I told you to remove those children, get them completely out of the picture. But that one in him that knew couldn't quite do it. So the last version he submitted had the children completely out of the picture. They were buried under two small tombstones on the bank of the river. It took him a while after West Point to kind of get his painting back. So in forgetfulness, we blame one another. We've lost that spirit. It's them or it's us. It's someone's fault, the sorrows of the world. But is that who we are most fundamentally? Wisdom sees that I am nothing and love sees that I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. It's the words of a teacher of mine, a sage. Who are we before all these stories? And what is that nature? Again, remember Thomas Merton's words. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor knowledge can reach the core of reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there'd be no more need for war, or greed, or cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. The one who knows in them awakens the child of the spirit for whom all things are new. That's that story of Whistler again. In our front yard, we have a plum tree that's in bloom as most of the plum trees in the Bay Area or certainly in Marin are. Um, it's a pink plum tree. You know how delicate plum blossoms are. And this tree and my daughter have this lifelong relationship. And it's just her tree every time, you know, when she was in preschool and she drew a picture of the house, it was the tree and the house, or the tree with the swing in it, when we put the swing in the house. And even now, and she's in seventh grade, she'll come home from school, grab her bed pillows, climb up the tree, make a nest in there, bring her homework up, and sit up in her tree and do her homework. Plum blossoms, have you looked? this week? I mean, go really close, put your nose in them, smell them. 
they're so delicate and they, it's they're um, like this tender little um, uh, baby touching your skin you know and yet they're also shocking they have a certain power as well as delicacy you come around the corner you're driving and all of a sudden boom plum tree you know there it is in the corner this whole thing so the one who knows, who awakens, there comes this marriage to amazement, this incredible sense of each day of being alive. I like to tell the story of the Dalai Lama when he went to give the teachings of the Wheel of Time, the Kala Chakra initiation in Madison Square Garden. Thousands of people, a great big throne set up, and he comes in, and there are all the monks there who've been chanting and playing those great big cymbals and the oh, those big Tibetan horns and chanting for hours, you know, and this whole ceremonial procession. And the Dalai Lama climbed the big throne in the middle, which had all these Oriental carpets, and on the top a kind of place to sit, um, which they kind of built and put some mattresses on the top, and he sat down. And it bounced. And he smiled a little bit. And then he bounced again. And he smiled a little bit more. And then he started bouncing up and down on this mattress in the middle of Madison Square Garden. Thousands of people for this great mystical initiation. And there he was, bouncing up and down. Oh, the one who knows can still bounce. And sees that it's not them, but it's us. It's our beauty and spring winds and rain and green hills. And it's our racism, you know, and it's our arm sales and it's our traffic jams and it's our loneliness. And it knows all of that. I thought that my voyage had come to its end at the last limit of my power. This is a poem from Rabindranath Tagore, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in the turn of the century. That the path before me was closed, the provisions were exhausted, and the time come to take shelter in a silent obscurity. But I find the divine knows no end in me, and when old words die out on the tongue, New melodies break forth from the heart, and where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed with its wonders. So there is a kind of trust that comes in the one who knows, even in the hard times, that this too is a part of the season of life. We practice, we come and sit together and learn this honorable practice of attention and compassion to train the heart, to remind the heart of this possibility of how to be in the world. The one who knows when we open treasures how it is to be here for one another, how much we need one another. Our interconnectedness is as near as our breath to one another. There's a story from Chinese dissident Mr. Liu Qing, who served 11 years in Weinan No. 2 prison in Shaanxi province. 
And during this time, Mr. Liu was forced to sit on a little wooden stool eight inches high without moving for ten hours a day. If he moved or talked, he was beaten. And to end these years of suffering and assure his successful future, he needed only to sign a statement without naming anyone, saying that he had made some mistakes in his thinking. Against all odds, Mr. Liu King refused to sign the confession. What kept him from signing this paper? When he left and he was asked, after all those years, he said the jailers came into his cell, put the paper before him, asking him to sign. Each time he saw before him the faces of his family and friends and knew they were with him and that he could not sign. The friends and family who were a part of him would not let him betray himself. Gandhi put it this way. He said, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives. I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. So we don't awaken for ourselves. We awaken with one another. We remember with one another. And in a moment when we look with the eyes of compassion at the sorrows and the beauty of this life, we become like the mother of the Buddha. There's a wonderful text called the Mothers of the Buddha. You think the Buddhist texts are good, try reading the Buddha's mother, right? Which sees all beings as our children. She sees creation and knows that it is in this form for only a short while, that we cannot possess even these bodies. And so we have to let go into life, into the seasons of life and find our part in these changing seasons with tenderness and respect, with courage and compassion. And in this comes the great trust that we are part of something much bigger than this small sense of self. It's like the Ojibwe Indians. Sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. There's some greater truth that carries us through this life. And I like the story of my good friend and Dharma colleague, James Barris, who was in India with Punja Papaji. And he'd gone to India because he heard Punja was a wise and great teacher and After many years of practicing meditation, teaching, he wanted to get renewed, inspired in a deeper way. And sitting with Punja, after a few days, Punja was talking about being with the Guru and the grace of the Guru. And James said, you know, I'm not used to grace. I'm, I'm used to meditating and listening and so forth. But how do I know if I'm getting the grace of the Guru or not, he asked Punja. And Punja looked back at him and said, uh, you ask, how do you know if you're getting the grace of the guru? He said, here you are, you are a meditation teacher. You showed me pictures of your meditation center and your teachers. You have a beautiful family. You showed me pictures of your wife and your child. 
you know, and now you're in India with all your spiritual friends, you're young, you have your health, you're sitting at the feet of the teacher, of the master, looking into his eyes, and you're asking if there is grace. You are neck deep in grace, and you do not know. You are neck deep in grace. Mm. The one who knows somehow remembers this truth, even in our difficulties. This capacity to hold and honor the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life with a dignity and a presence and an appreciation of the heart so that our life becomes a blessing. The one who knows is not afraid to sit, to walk, to stand, to be silent at times, and to offer oneself to life at others. You say you cannot create anything original, don't worry about it. Create a cup from which your brother or sister can drink. That simple, the simplest things. Mehrbaba, see if I can find it. The scope of the service of the heart is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, huge donations. They also serve who express their love in little things. A word that gives courage to a broken heart. A smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom. A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of moments and small things. And if these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable. To face the mystery, the eternal, a spring day, and say yes. And so I end with a poem from Rumi called Say Yes Quickly. Forget your life. Say God is great. Get up. You think you know what time it is? It's time to pray. Don't knock on any random door like a beggar. Reach your long hand out to another door beyond where you go on these streets, the streets where everyone says, how are you? And no one remembers to say, how aren't you? If you are here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. If you are here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage, mostly to yourself. If you've opened your loving to the divine love, you're helping people you don't know and have never seen. Is what I say true? Say yes quickly, if you know, if you've known it, from before the beginning of the universe. So let's sit for a minute.
And as you sit quietly, reflecting, present, ask a couple of questions of your heart. Where is it that you most fall asleep? What is the place of forgetting, turning away? You can remember, you can know. What is that forgetfulness that it's time to pay attention to? And turning that reflection around, what is it that reminds you, that awakens the one who knows in your heart? What circumstances, what ways bring that to life? And what would nourish that more fully? We'll take a few minutes, maybe five minutes or so, to ask that question aloud, and then we'll end the evening with a chant, go back into the spring night. First question, when you pose that question to yourself, where do you fall asleep, forget, lose, that it might be time to pay attention to? What came to people as an answer? What did you learn or discover in that? Anyone? Please. I tend to fall asleep in the details. I fall asleep in the details. Can you give an example? I'm well, curious. Sometimes I can get so engrossed at work in the details of what I'm doing that I forget why I'm doing it. I get so engrossed in the details at work that I forget why I'm doing it. It's like the person who was the stonemason in France. There were three people actually were working on these great big stones. And first person, someone said, well, what are you doing? The first person said, I'm a, I'm a stone cutter and I'm here chipping away to make a square stone for building. And the second one was asked, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm cutting stone to make a living to feed my children and care for my family. And the third one said, I'm cutting the stone to place up there and make a great cathedral. So you for, you get into the you're in the first position. Uh-huh. 
Thank you. Someone else, please. Yes. Um, in, in judging, in, in judgments of myself and others. Mm. Forgetfulness comes in judgment, judging of myself and of others. Yeah, we forget. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. I forget when I'm fearful or I'm overly selfish. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yes. When I'm in the fast lane. When I'm in the fast lane. Ah, uh, yes, with a cell phone in one ear and radio on as well. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. When I'm hibernating, when I don't move my body, when I'm not exercising. When someone needs me to hold them and I'm too busy. When someone needs me to hold them and I'm too busy or I feel too busy. Mm-hmm. When I'm working constantly around the clock, even in my sleep. When I'm working constantly around the clock, even in my sleep. <sighs> so then the opposite. When is it that, or what circumstance is it that remember, that remind you, that awaken that one who knows? When I'm in the presence of children. When I'm in the presence of children. Yes? Nature. Nature, walking in nature. Sitting on my rear end. <laughs> she said her cushion. But. When I look into the eyes of my husband or of your friend or anybody. When I look into the eyes of my husband, of a friend, of anybody, when you really look. Thank you. When I look into the eyes of a child and that is sick or needs needs something. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Simple, aren't they? Walk in nature, look into the eyes of another, take time to be silent, move my body and exercise, remember to come alive. When I come to Monday night class and have to give the lecture, <laughs> makes me remember for a little while. So the chant tonight is simple. It's the simple sound of ah, of opening or letting go. It's called the first sound or the last sound, the original sound. And um, we'll just sing that for a little while and then go out. Um, before we do two more things, there's also a little flyer out there, one announcement I didn't make. I'm doing a thing at Mount Madonna in Watsonville, a, a weekend of meditation and teachings next weekend on the perils and promises of the spiritual path. That's one more event. And um, I want to thank you also for your support and donations to Spirit Rock, coming to the class you pay. And um, it helps Spirit Rock to run and be available for all the other things, the family program and the, all the things that we do. And as you can see, this beautiful new residential retreat center is almost finished in, in the next couple or a few months it'll be done and then as we sit here in class for those who still come there'll be a hundred people or 150 or however many it is um, there for a week or 10 days or a month in silence 
walking in nature, listening. So there'll be a kind of music between the two groups that I'm looking forward to very much. And thank you for, again, for that support, for whatever you put into the baskets, and more than that, for the care and the respect that you bring here. Ah, it's a letting go. Ah, harmony. Ah, 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 ah. forgetfulness, and the one who knows. Thank you. See you again. Drive carefully out there. Which one? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.